Welcome back to Tea on 2020. The podcast that helps you stay politically informed because we all know that it's a struggle to stay up to date. So instead, use our weekly TLDR to maintain your status as an informed voter. Last episode, we talked about religion and its role in government. Today, we are yet again switching gears and talking about gun control. But these topics are similar because traditionally, gun rights, just like religion, have split along party lines. Republicans have always represented avid gun owners through the party support of the National Rifle Association, also known as the NRA, which you may have seen on bumper stickers. The recently canceled NRTV are everyone's least favorite cousin's t-shirts, and the Republican Party's gun platform reflects their constituents' opinions on guns. Pew Research in 2017 found that 76% of registered Republicans say it's more important to protect the right of Americans to own guns than it is to control gun ownership. On the other hand, the Democrats have been seen as a threat to the NRA by being a party with a platform that carries politicians representing constituents that want stronger gun regulation. 80% of registered Democrats told Pew in 2017 that they wanted stricter gun laws, while only 19% say it's more important to protect the right of Americans to own guns than it is to control gun ownership. The difference between party supporters and their opinions on guns is rather staggering. But these parties do agree on certain things, too. Gasp. Over 70% of both Republicans and Democrats think that people with mental illnesses should be prevented from buying guns. People on federal no-fly or watch lists should be barred from purchasing firearms, and there should be background checks for private gun sales and sales at gun shows. But these these parties split again down their respective party lines when it comes to allowing teachers and school officials to carry guns in elementary and high schools allowing people to carry concealed weapons in public spaces, and banning assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. In the meantime, mass shootings and gun-related deaths have continued to rise, while more people personally know people who are victims of gun violence. And some politicians use rhetoric that make it seem like gun violence is correlated with opioid use and illegal immigration, two topics that we have already covered and that don't have to do with guns at all. But before we start getting into the intricacies that is gun control policy, we have to take a step back and understand the basis of this gun control debate. The Second Amendment. Again, if you're living under a rock or have slept through American history, it's the amendment that gives citizens the right to bear arms. Now, this amendment, and how it's interpreted, sets the not-so-romantic mood for a discussion about gun theory. So I think now is an appropriate time to switch gears to the theory portion of this podcast. The Second Amendment is based on two principles, that A, the Constitution gives the federal government almost total legal authority over the army and militia, and B, the federal government should not have any constitutional authority to disarm the citizenry. Therefore, to the same extent that the federal government cannot control my ability to scream in the middle of the street that I think that the dress is blue and black, and anyone who thinks it's white and gold is wrong and can fight me is blind and a liar. The government also cannot prohibit me from worshipping pasta, bitching all of Jane the Virgin in two days, and the government cannot take away my gun. However, since the 18th century, 
there have been changes in how the militaries and armies are organized, as your nerd friend who is a revolutionary war reenactor might demonstrate. Weapons have become more intricate, deadlier, and easily produced, and the threat of invaders or the threat that the American government will oppress its own citizens have also shifted. The Second Amendment and giving the federal government almost total legal authority over the army and militia gave the power to require all its citizens to defend against against foreign attack, allowing the country to put up a stronger and more united front despite its weak economy and the lack of infrastructure. But at the same time, by giving citizens the right to bear arms, it prevented any individual's attempt to form an administration and overthrow the democratic system so that he can establish another autocracy or dictatorship to govern the American people, just like Great Britain did. However, in the 21st century, militias are outlawed and there are powerful guns that can precision shoot from feet away and guns that can fire thousands of bullets in mere seconds. We are also happy to announce that as a country, we should no longer fear that England will send ships to invade us because they're currently trying to figure out whether Brexit is a new hip thing to do. Canada will also not invade us because, one, they have no reason. I mean, look at their prime minister. Really, like, look at him. He's gorgeous. And two, they're way too nice. Could you imagine how effective kindness would be in a hostile invasion? And no matter how often President Trump uses executive power, it is extremely difficult slash borderline impossible to collect the legislative and judicial branches' powers. Plus, consolidating power would take up too much of his executive time, and the guy has to golf. I mean, how else would he maintain that beautiful Roman godlike body of his? No idea. Therefore, as the context surrounding the drafting of the amendment has changed, does this mean that the interpretation ought to change too? And based on this interpretation, what power does this amendment grant to the American citizens and the American government? Well, this amendment is interpreted under the current state of national security and weapon technology. Power is taken away from the American citizen and given to the government in order to control gun ownership. However, as this amendment is interpreted more to how the founding fathers understood the right to bear arms, power is taken away from the government and given to the American citizen, granting less restrictions on gun ownership. Now, let's talk gun control policy. Candidates will have to answer the following questions. Who yields more control over gun ownership, the government or the American citizen? When gun use surpasses amendment rights, are there repercussions? If so, what are they? How do we prevent people from using guns in heinous ways? How do we monitor gun distribution? Our first candidate is President Donald John Trump. So, after the Parkland, Florida shootings in 2018, his administration unveiled its plan to curb school shooting rates. And this goal was primarily focused on uh, arming teachers. Hmm. This plan was kind of in accordance with the Department of Education. Oh, makes sense. Um, And he, so yeah, so it was kind of pushing, using the Department of Education to armed teachers. Mm -hmm. Now, after the Parkland shooting, there was a bipartisan bill um, that was trying to get passed that basically uh, by a Democrat, Tomey, and a Republican, uh, Munchen, and basically they wanted to increase the uh, age limit in order to purchase assault rifles Mm -hmm. from 18 to 21 years old. and Trump actually was very for this, but then oh. after meeting with NRA, with NRA, um, he 
kind of stepped back on it. And when the Democrat, Tomey, kind of pushed him for this, he said that the reason he didn't do this was because the Democrats are scared of the NRA and that the age limit was fine. So after this kind of whole publicity um, stunt, uh, he called for states instead to pass risk protection orders, which basically uh, with a court warrant, uh, law enforcement can take a gun away from someone who seemed as a risk to himself or his community. And then the Trump administration also pushed Congress to pass two bipartisan pieces of legislature on background checks and violence prevention programs, uh, fix NICS Act, uh, strengthen the background checks by punishing federal agencies through a financial penalty that don't submit criminal records to the National Criminal Background Check System for uh, for firearms. It's kind of this very elaborate program. So he's basically not changing the laws. He's just kind of making a punishment not to enforce them. No. And then on top of that, he Congress passed Stop School Violence Act mm-hmm. that doesn't address guns at all. Instead, it provides an annual grant for schools for evidence-based, in quotation, training programs to revamp reporting systems of criminals within their networks, but also to basically provide rigorous firearm training to specially qualified volunteer school personnel. Mm. And this was going to be funded by the Justice Department. Okay. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And then later on, the Justice Department submitted a rule to ban bump stock, but because it's not legislature... Mm -hmm. Um, it, and it's all passed by Congress. It mm-hmm. can't really have any approval. So I guess kind of looking back onto this, um, first of all, what do you think it shows for the Trump administration that doesn't support the Tomey mentioned proposal to increase the age of gun purchases and instead siding onto the NRA's interests and lobbies? Well, the first thing that seems to be the most uh, concerning is the fact that the president doesn't seem to be the president. If the person really making our gun laws is the NRA, and then I think there's a problem. Another thing that stands out to me is that the Trump administration really hasn't changed anything. Like I said before, they are putting more on the government in terms of enforcement, but there's no more responsibility for the average gun owner or a person who wants to buy these assault rifles to change their habits in any way. Mm -hmm. So I don't see how that's preventing shootings. It's almost covering their tracks so they're not going to prevent the shootings. They're, he wants to better prepare people to deal with shootings in his own way. Right. And I would actually argue that if his party doesn't want to kind of to keep the Second Amendment as is because they claim that by restricting gun ownership, government is becoming too big and mm-hmm. plays too big of a role. I would actually argue that Fix an ICS Act and the Stop School Violence Act, the Republican support, actually brought in brought in the government involvement in attempts to kind of curb gun violence. That's true. The only thing that I would say, trying to go against that and fitting into the normal Republican view, is obviously giving more power to the states. So Trump said that states really should go ahead with passing whatever laws they deem important. But I think that's really not going to change anything. Because right now we have states that have already passed really strict laws, way stricter, way more strict than the ones that are in place federally Mm -hmm. and they're not going to change anything because they already have this and it's not putting any pressure on states that don't have any strict gun laws to really amp up what they're doing Mm -hmm. 
It's also interesting that when you talk about gun control, you would never think the Department of Education is the one to be involved in this. Right. That's true. That's very true. So what does it mean in society if the Department of Education is handling weapons? Yeah, that's true. Right. So do you think in, you know, looking back at the FIX NICS Act and the Stop School Violence Act, do you think that's something that the Trump administration should be proud of? I mean, does it show that the country is currently trying to curb shootings um, and the ability of guns to get, you know, into dangerous people's hands. I don't think you need my opinion on this. Since Parkland, there have been plenty more shootings, so it's obviously right. not working. That's true. We're seeing uptakes in shootings. We're not seeing any declines. So yeah. even if the Trump administration thinks they've done enough, which I'm sure they know they haven't, they just don't want to do more, the results aren't what they thought it would be or what people need it to be. So therefore, it's not enough, no matter if they think they did enough. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's very interesting because Parkland actually had a volunteer or a paid security person done, who had actually fled the scene and now he's <laughs> undergoing criminal prosecution. So it kind of, I think, undermines even the Stop School Violence Act in the first place. I think all of this really underlines the principle that some people believe that the only way to stop, you've heard it all the time, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Right. So Trump is assuming that all these volunteers and all of these teachers are going to be good guys with guns and stand up to whoever has a gun. Right. Even though they might not be trained and they have to go through serious rounds of training. These are normal teachers. That's true, yeah. And and professionals who have been, you know, in battlegrounds and who are trained to use weapons, you know, have been rather vocal in the media saying that that's very an unrealistic scenario. And what happens if someone else gets their hand on a gun? Right, that's because true. We're talking about kindergarten students. They touch everything. Right. That's very true. It looks like a toy to them. Right. So I think there are a lot of concerns here that aren't addressed. And But interestingly enough, he hasn't really done anything to go forward with this process. Yeah. He's had a lot of he's had a lot of talk about arming teachers, but what has he actually done? If he if he really thinks that's the way to solve all these shootings, only school shootings, because there's still so many other scenarios where shootings are taking place around the world, but specifically in this country. But there's been nothing done to specifically work in schools. And I think that shows a failure on Trump's part, no matter what his position is, even though I'm obviously critical of his position, if he truly believed in what he was saying, he would act on it. I agree. Yeah, that's a good point. So moving on to the next candidate, let's see what John Hickenlooper has to say. So who is John Hickenlooper? Well, he's 67 years old. He is a former governor of Colorado, and he possesses perhaps the awesomest last name known to humankind. <laughs> Except the second coolest last name belongs to his wife, whose name, wait, wait for it, Robin Pringle. Oh my goodness. I know, just a power couple. Like, those kids must be amazing. The Hickenlooper Pringles, I want to uh -huh. join. Please adopt me. Um, also, fun fact, he has a cameo in the 2010 film Casino Jack, directed by his cousin. That's pretty wow. cool. So he's got a whole IMDb page. Yeah. He's just a cool guy. Last name, movie cameos, mayor, governor, the whole package. Yeah. So prior to being governor of Colorado, he was the mayor of Denver for eight years. And that, so being in Denver, he was less than 10 miles away from mass shootings at Columbine High School and Aurora, Colorado. So this is really centered with a lot of trauma. He was governor when Aurora happened. And in response, he passed universal background checks in the aftermath, along with a ban on high-capacity magazines in the state mm -hmm. of Colorado. 
Additionally, after Aurora, the state spent $30 million on mental health care. Right. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And he has a plan as president to reduce gun violence, and it's in some part based on what he's done as governor. So his first part would be universal background checks, which is what he already implemented when he was governor. Mm-hmm. And this would be for all gun sales, not just the assault rifles. Right. And he, he justifies that justifies this point in the fact that one in five guns sold do not undergo checks because of loopholes. Mm-hmm. Especially there's some things called the gun show loophole, which I'm sure you've heard of, where really they don't have to go through all of these same um, restrictions that other guns may, might have at these gun shows. So in addition to applying background checks, he's going to close all these loopholes. Mm-hmm. So every single gun purchased will go through this. In addition, in addition, in additionally, there's usually a three-day waiting period to mm-hmm. buy guns, and he wants to extend that to 10 days. I see. So people really have a lot to consider, and if someone was planning a shooting, I guess, per se, they would have to plan a lot ahead. It can't be really impulsive. He's trying to take right. the impulsivity out of gun buys. Mm-hmm. Um, and just going back to loopholes, the reason why he wants to close this is there's one loophole called the Charleston loophole, um, which allowed the purchase of gun and use, use in the 2015 church shooting that killed nine individuals. Mm-hmm. in Charleston. So this has to do with the waiting period. And he additionally wants to implement national gun licenses. So this would really take the hands the take the power out of the hands of the state and put it into the federal government. Mm-hmm. So everyone would have a license that's renewed every 5 years and it goes along with the background check. Mm-hmm. He also we talked about this before how Trump was actually for this, mm-hmm. but then was scared of the big bad NRA. So Hickenlooper right. wants to raise the minimum age to own a gun to 21, mm-hmm. which kind of seems to be on par with a lot of things in the country. I mean, alcohol was originally 18, moves 21. Right. Cigarettes in a lot of states are now 21. They used to be 18. Mm-hmm. I think it's federally still 18, but states have changed it. Right. So I think that would kind of make sense given the progression of history in this country. He also is encouraging something that he calls extreme risk protection orders. Which basically he would provide grants to states, encouraging them to make laws allowing law enforcement to restrict access to guns to prevent violence if they see some warning signs. So this already happens in Colorado and 14 other states. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit like what we were talking about before, where law enforcement is really given a lot of discretion when it comes to taking hands. Risk protection orders, right. So taking the guns out of um, the hands of potentially violent people. Right. In addition to what he's passed in Colorado, he wants to limit high-capacity magazines and ban bump stocks altogether. Bump stocks were a really big topic issue mm-hmm. after the most recent shootings, but nothing has happened in the federal government to ban those. So he would ban it on a federal level. Again, mm-hmm. some states already have similar uh, policies. He also wants to ban all assault weapons. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know this until I did some research that there was a, an assault weapon ban in 1994. Okay. So when we were born and a bunch of people watching this were born, you couldn't have an assault weapon. Right. But that ban was only for 10 years. So it expired in 2004 and it has not been renewed given, you know, the trends of conservatism to move kind of towards the right. right. Because in the 90s with the Clinton era, we had a lot of, uh, you know, this new wave of liberalism mm-hmm. for the time. And that kind of changed moving into the Bush years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of stayed like that. There's been a lot of calls to ban assault weapons, especially since assault weapons are many times the weapons used in these shootings. Mm -hmm. And even a lot of gun owners or um, just professionals or former people in the army 
don't believe that really there's a need for assault weapons right for the average person mm-hmm. and again in accordance to what he's done in colorado he wants to boost access to mental health services for children i see so something that i think kind of sets him apart so this is a pretty standard plan mm-hmm. it's very liberal it's a lot more restrictive than a trump plan or maybe a cons- uh, central right uh right person or center left mm-hmm candidate would propose but something that keeps him a little bit interesting is that he spoke with newtown families about his plan so the newtown shooting in connecticut happened a few years ago and he really wanted to talk to survivors or the parents of people who have been affected by gun violence to see what they think of the plan he also met with columbine survivors in his own Mm -hmm. area to talk about just to talk about what people have gone through. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what something that might set him apart moving forward. Right. So what I want to talk about in regards to his plan is just what what is the cost of implementing these measures? Because I don't really see that there is much of a cost. No, there isn't. And I think that it's very broad because, I mean, can you really have a federally mandated mental health service, for example? That's going to be very hard to implement in a lot of states that don't have the funding for it and to garner support for that too in possibly a legislative branch that isn't controlled by the same party. So they all look good ideally, but I think it's going to require a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have the bipartisan support per se of such a plan, I think then that money becomes way too much to try to push this plan so let's circle back to the mental health issue because i think that this is something that actually both parties support just the general thought of making sure that people have adequate mental health resources because no one's going to disagree with that the division comes when people are willing to put down money on that and i think that's what you're talking about so right and i think the question is what's adequate you know i mean like in every school one more school psychologist isn't going to make the same impact as if you gave all three school psychologists to one specific school Mm -hmm. like how do you divide those resources and so that's that's very true and we can get into mental health we can talk a whole day about really the mental health resources that this country provides but i think that it's interesting how we see mental health spending associated with gun violence right and gun control because i feel like it's a more of another fix like trump's fixes that mm-hmm. wouldn't directly limit guns, but no. seems like it could help address the problem. But if there are still guns, there there's not there's are still going to be shootings, right? In my view, but I think I think though his ideas are broad, and I'm not sure how feasible national licenses may be, mm-hmm. because even if you think about driver's licenses, those are done at the state level, right? And how much people make fake licenses? Oh yeah, <laughs> we're gonna see a whole new wave of fake gun IDs. Yeah. So I think that would definitely take a lot to put together. Right. But I don't think that there would be a high cost in the actual policy portions. No, like, like closing loopholes. No, or limiting magazines or banning bum stocks. No. I mean, it might, it might economically hurt an industry, but I don't think it's increasing the budget of the government anytime soon. That's very true. Okay, so we talked about someone 
Oh, wait, one more thing. Before we move out of him, what do you think his experience is going to help him? So he has his own trauma from these shootings, living Mm -hmm. in Colorado, being the governor and a mayor of Denver. And he's talked to these survivors and parents of victims. Does this experience give him a competitive edge or more credibility on what he's saying? Yeah, I think so. I think it, because it kind of puts that passion portion of politics that I think a lot of people like to see, that if the politician isn't emotionally connected to the policy he or she is trying to push, then that policy is never going to happen. So I think that essentially this, he has a passion project Mm -hmm. and where he wants to see his personal suffering alienated. So I think that's going to help. All right. So we've talked about two kind of extremes to this issue. Let's talk about someone who's more in the middle. I agree. Okay, let's talk about Andrew Yang. He is 44 years old. He is not a politician, but he calls himself an entrepreneur. Okay, whatever. That's kind of another word. Like, I feel like people who are unemployed and still living in their parents' basement, and anyone would ask, you know, what they're working on, and they'd be like, I'm an entrepreneur. Right, or someone who's gone into financial debt because of poor spending habits. Okay, so notes are not great here, Andrew Yang. Um, so he also calls his supporters the Yang Gang. Oh, jeez. Stop. That's so uncomfortable. So he's obviously uh, trying to be hip for the kids. It's not hip. It's just weird. <laughs> he's totally out of tune with the kids. Someone does not like Andrew Yang. But let's continue. Uh, he went to the amazing school, probably the best school in the world, Brown University. Uh, we have no bias on that. No, never. He also studied political science, probably the greatest concentration at Brown (laughs) University. Again, no bias. (laughs) And he worked as a corporate lawyer for a while. Future lawyers, pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And after dropping out of the field of corporate law, he ran a national education company. Interesting. So that's interesting roots to have. I feel like we don't have a lot of people that come from an education background. No. The 2020 candidates. And... Education is definitely something that can help you out, especially education policy. Right. You know how education works, specifically the public education system. Uh I think you'll have a really good grounding in um, what what needs to be done Mm -hmm. for education, and you won't put someone like Betsy DeVos in charge. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. So that's another story. After his national education company, he's also the founder of this Venture for America, which is another company. So he's done a variety of things. He obviously has a bit of money. Right. And now he's running for president. Nice. So Andrew Yang is, he's definitely very left. He's very liberal, like a lot of the candidates. But for his gun control policy specifically, he has a little bit more of a centrist view. Mm -hmm. He also supports new licensing requirements. I see. And instead of calling this a driver's license, he calls it a commercial driver's license. Okay. Which is a little bit of specification. Right. So there would be different requirements for every type of gun. Mm -hmm. And he actually goes into a tiered approach of how he's going to do this. I see. So at the lowest level would be hunting rifles and handguns. Mm -hmm. Those people who want to purchase a gun would have to pass a background check. Mm -hmm. They would have to also take a basic safety class Mm -hmm. and provide a receipt that shows they have a proper storage locker or lock to keep this gun. Mm -hmm. So the next level would build on that. Right. And there are three levels. Getting to the highest level would be advanced and automatic weaponry. So mm-hmm. we're talking about assault rifles and things like that. Right. He also wants to ban high-capacity magazines. Mm-hmm. And 
the people who want to buy these guns would actually have to submit their fingerprints and DNA samples right. to mm-hmm. the FBI. Mm-hmm. They also, in addition to having to show a receipt for uh, a gun locker, their gun locker needs to be inspected. Mm-hmm. And instead of taking one basic safety class, they would have to take yearly refresher trainings. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the inspection, for example, that's very common in Germany. Like if you own a gun, you basically relinquish your privacy. The police can show up at any time to um, monitor and make sure that your gun is properly stored. And does Germany have as many mass shootings? Uh, sorry, just checking on that. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So this is where he gets a little bit interesting and diverges from the pack when he talks about perks for gun owners. So this would start taking place when he's president, but uh-huh. those who already have guns would be grandfathered in. Uh-huh. So they wouldn't really have to go through the same types of requirements. I see. They would definitely have to submit to some of them, but not to the same extent as new gun owners. Uh-huh. Gun owners could also get tax write-offs for safety equipment. Mm-hmm. So let's move on and talk about some abnormalities compared to other Democrats mm-hmm. in his policies. He also talks about concealed weapon um, and concealed weapons and open carry. Mm-hmm. He wants to leave this to the states to decide, which is currently how it is. Some states allow you to open carry really anywhere, while in a lot of states you need a license to carry weapons. Right. And no other Democrat really talks about this. Mm-hmm. He also wants to invest in innovative technology that would make firearms harder to fire for non-owners of the gun. And that's a direct quote. Interesting. So Seems a little confused. <laughs> I don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. But it could be interesting. And just really things that he goes side by side with, with other Democrats, is um, invest in mental health funding and infrastructure. Right. He also talks about increasing funding to national suicide prevention uh-huh. groups. Get rid of the gun show loophole, which we talked about. And he doesn't say anything about banning assault rifles. He does not want to do this. Maybe he's going to leave it to the states like he has in other ways. But he really hasn't touched on a lot of that. So would this tiered approach work, do you think? Um, I, I guess. And I think the good point you make is like what happens if you own you know, one low-level rifle and then one high-level rifle. I mean, are you? do you have to do the basic safety class or you have to do the yearly refresher co- trainings? I mean, is this going to be court-manded if you don't do the t- refresher trainings? Mm-hmm. Are your guns going to be taken away? Are you going to have suspension? Because ideally, if you're not complying, why should you be having a gun? So I think it becomes, it's much more intricate than just, because ideally you're creating a whole other policing system for gun use. Yeah. Um, so I think it becomes very intricate. And I think, again, it's a federal level, so all states will have to approve for it, despite, you know, each state's kind of record with gun use. Yes, that's very true. So the other thing I think about is, do you think Republicans would agree to this? Because it's a little bit more moderate. But the other thing that Republicans might not want is with this tiered system, Mm -hmm. it really gives a lot of power to the central government. It takes that away from the states. So the states are given power with specific issues, like with with, um, just the amount of money they're putting into it, with buyback policies, and with uh, open carry. Mm -hmm. The federal government is really controlling all of the licensing. Right. So I'm not sure. I, I honestly can't tell you if Republicans would agree to this. Yeah, neither can I, because I think at the end of the day, to the point that it's restricting more how fast you can get guns, um, I think that's going to be a very big issue. 
because if it's your constitutional amendment, if it's your constitutional right, excuse me, um, why should you have to wait 10 days versus three? I don't know. Okay, so let's talk about all three of them together. Good idea. Here's a recap. If we imagine the candidates as a spectrum, John Hickenlooper falls on the very left end with Donald Trump towards the right, but not to the extreme right due to some government control. Andrew Yang is near the center left because though he gives some power to the states and does not seek to ban all high-powered weapons, his tiered licensing plan puts a lot of control into the hands of the federal government. All candidates want to reduce gun violence. The division comes with balancing mental health funding, access to guns, and who we allow in our society to be armed. Now it's time to spill the tea. We've talked about the background and theory behind this issue, and you've heard what a few candidates plan to do about it, but let's put guns in more tangible terms. Hope you like math, because it's time for a statistics lesson. First, let's talk quantity. We are a country of 327 million people, and we are a country of over 390 million guns. It's hard to fathom why so many people need guns, and it's even harder to think why why someone would need more than one gun. Unless the excess is accounted for some ghosts or the aliens that the government just wants us to think aren't real. Okay, so let's say fine, people want these guns for whatever reason. How are they getting them? I can hardly afford how expensive brunch is getting, and we have people out here collecting guns like they were silly bands and we're all back in middle school. Well, guns are not actually as expensive as you may think. Assault rifles cost approximately 1500 bucks, the same price as a MacBook. Well, handguns can cost around $200, only $200. That's less than it costs to get a fancy haircut in New York City or the cost of a few nice outfits. Current gun laws make it pretty simple to obtain guns with no questions asked, and these prices are making high-grade weaponry affordable. So what is this all leading to? We have entered an unforgettable phase in society where we have become desensitized to gun violence due to the fact that it is always on our screens. It seems like there's another mass shooting every few days. And that is true. Shootings happen every day. A hundred Americans were killed every day by guns. Between last week's episode and today, that means there's 700 more Americans that are dead due to guns. And we are all responsible. You may have not heard of these deaths on the news because they're not large enough in scale to report. But nevertheless, they happened. Let's now take a look at the type of gun violence that is covered on the news, mass shootings. Mass shootings are considered to be attacks in which three or more people are killed due to gun violence. Since 1982, there have been more than 90 mass shootings in the U.S. Since 1991, 7 out of 10 of the deadliest attacks have occurred in the last 10 years. Mass shootings are claiming more victims and getting more frequent. Now we know these are just numbers, and they can feel very far away. But 58% of Americans or someone they care for have experienced gun violence in their lifetime, and I have a feeling that number is going to continue to grow. So before you say, well, that isn't me, think about how it easily could have been you or could still be you in the future. Let these statistics and the links we have included help to inform your opinions about gun control. Policy is very disconnected to what is happening in reality, but it has real power to enact change. And whichever candidate you choose to support regarding gun control, make sure it's a candidate who plans to do something. Check out the links posted in the description to learn more about gun control and subscribe to us on all social medias using the handle the T on 2020 for more in-depth content. 
Be safe and be informed. Thank you and go vote.